continue, Lord, in prayer, asking that you would answer this cry of our heart as we have sung, praying in behalf of those who know not Christ, and thanking you for the word that you have revealed to us who do, and we trust you will open the eyes of those who are blind to it, to see that light and to respond to it in faith. May we also, who know you, respond in faith. May we know that every word of God recorded in Scripture is for our use, for our growth, and to instruct and help us. We need it. And I pray, Lord, that while we consider ideas that are clear to us who know the Bible, I pray that you would deepen us in our trust in you and in your word and move in the life of your church to feed us on that word today. Through Christ we pray. Amen. Please be seated. There's often a sizable gap between what God has said and what we want God to say. There's often a vast chasm between what God wills and what we want God to will. As we've noted earlier in this series on the Word of God, the Lord speaks to His people in three ways. We could categorize His words in three ways. He declares truth. He issues moral commands, and He makes promises concerning the future. As we think on those three, we find some of those truth statements troubling. We find ourselves wanting to believe something else. We often chafe at God's commands concerning what we must do and what we must not do. And Likewise, with God's promises, We doubt those intended to give us hope, and we dismiss those intended to warn us. As God's children, there is often a gap between what God says and what we want God to say. One of the most severe dangers that we face in this world comes from people who try to exploit that gap. God's word, what I want There's a chasm between, and people exploit it. God has chosen to convey His truth to His people in part through recognized teachers, Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 and following. Under the old covenant, that might be a priest, a prophet, or king. Under the new covenant, that might be one who spoke in tongues or who prophesied, or today, one who proclaims God's word to the gathered assembly developing, explaining, looking at the written text of Scripture. But these same preachers and teachers can claim to speak God's truth to God's people when they are not doing so. They can boldly say, hear the word of the Lord. And then proceed to simply tell people what they want to hear. To tell people what has come out of their own heart and what they like, not God's truth. In Ezekiel chapter 13, we encounter God's rebuke of such preachers in a context that's very different from our own. But in this chapter, God rebukes prophets. That is an office the church no longer has, and yet a passage that sheds light on this age-old problem that we still encounter today, though under very different circumstances. Ezekiel, 
In 597 B.C., Ezekiel was taken with the second of three major groups of Israelites that were taken into exile in Babylon. Ezekiel's entire ministry took place as a prophet of God captive, to the captive people in Babylon. Back in the land of Israel, centered in Jerusalem, the older priest and prophet, Jeremiah, carried on a sim- similar ministry. He also called Israel to repent and promised that Babylon would conquer Judah if she did not turn to God and trust his word. Well, Ezekiel was already in Babylon, but he also prophesied to the people that were there. Last week we saw how dangerous it could be when we looked at the life of Jeremiah, how dangerous it could be to proclaim the truth of God to people who do not want to hear it, particularly when that's the king. King Jehoiakim. But Jeremiah risked his life proclaiming God's word to people who didn't want to hear that word, but he preached the word of God. And likewise, a captive in Babylon ministering to the people of God under discipline there in the second of three waves of exile, Ezekiel preached the word of God. It was unpopular. People didn't like what God was saying. But Ezekiel stuck with the message. Now both of these prophets, Jeremiah in Jerusalem and Ezekiel in Babylon, dealt with a fairly significant number of individuals who prophesied different messages. Not messages that God had spoken, but messages that people liked to hear. And so there was, there was a constant tension there between these sources. Those who said they spoke for God and did not, and those who truly spoke for God, Jeremiah and Ezekiel. And by the way, just a quick side point, it's interesting that we know the names Jeremiah and Ezekiel. We even name our children after them. We don't know who these prophets were that lied. They've disappeared. But we hear an account, an address to these prophets here in Ezekiel chapter 13 where God charges them. He accuses the lying prophets in verses 1 through 7. And in this series on the Word of God, we just offer this one example that, covers, that, that symbolizes pages of Scripture that deal with this problem. And so we want to think about it clearly and consider what God says to these prophets, applying them at the end to our own situation, which of course is different. But verse 1 of Ezekiel 13, The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, prophesy against the prophets of Israel who are prophesying, and say to those who prophesy from their own hearts, Hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, Woe to the foolish prophets who follow their own spirit and have seen nothing. What's wrong with these prophets? What sin are they committing? You see it there in verse 2. They prophesy from their own hearts. You see it there in verse 3. They follow their own spirit. So that, that means they are preaching messages to God's people that are motivated by the desires of their own hearts. That's where it's coming from. They are not messages that conform to God's word. And God rebukes them. In verse 2, here... The word of the Lord. What irony in that. They claim to speak for God. 
as prophets of God. They probably preface many of their prophecies that way. Hear the word of the Lord. And God says ironically to them, you have been claiming to speak for me, now listen to me. I've heard what you have been saying in my name, now hear what I have to say to you. Woe, verse 3, to the foolish prophets. There's a play on words here in the Hebrew. Nabayim, Nabalim. That's what they're called. The Nabayim, Nabalim. The foolish prophets. The prophets that are fools. Now this doesn't mean they're dumb people. They lack intelligence. Not at all. It means that they are morally foolish. Foolish in the sense that they are morally dull and insensitive. Their interest to honor God is not keen. And so God speaks a woe to them, a word of warning, a stern word of rebuke and curse. Woe to you. Because, verse 3, at the end, they speak in God's name, but they have seen nothing. That means that they are claiming to see visions of God. And at this particular point in history, there were prophets receiving visions from the Lord that spoke the truth about what was happening in the lives of God's people and they're claiming they saw a vision. I saw a vision. Here's what the Lord says. They'd seen no vision. They were just speaking in his name dishonorably. So God rightly and justly accuses them of misrepresenting him. Verse 4. Your prophets, he said to Israel, have been like jackals among the ruins. Verse 5, you've not gone up into the breaches or built up a wall for the house of Israel that it might stand in battle in the day of the Lord. Jackals are sometimes translated foxes. They like to play in rubble of a collapsed stone wall. I mean, a wall fell down, a sizable wall, and the rubble stayed there for a while. You could count on jackals coming. They'd soon be going in and out of the crevices and running around like squirrels running around a tree, chasing each other, and it looked like they're having the, the time of their life. But that, you just knew that's what was going to come if rubble was left to stand for a while. And he says, he says they, they have fun in the rubble, they do nothing, obviously, to repair it. Indeed, they were known to topple, these prophets known to topple walls like the jackals who burrowed sometimes under a wall and brought it down. That's you, he says to these prophets. You prophets of Israel are simply taking advantage of Israel's crumbling situation. When everything's crumbling around you, and the discipline of God is upon you, what you want to hear is it's all going to be okay. God really isn't noticing. Everything will turn out just right. And that's the message they were preaching. They were taking advantage of people who re desperately wanted good news. And in the midst of Israel's suffering, as Babylon had now exiled most of the nation, the prophets were devising these messages of comfort and restoration that were pure fantasy. Notice at the end of verse 5, the prophet's message should have built up God's people with the truth and thus built them up like a wall that could withstand the day of battle under God's hand of discipline. It speaks here of the day of the Lord. Now, the day of the Lord can be a formal idea of eschatological judgment from God. 
But here, the day of the Lord is more close at hand in this context. The day of the Lord is Babylon disciplining Israel for her rebellion against God. That day of the Lord has come. That discipline is going on. God has spoken and said it will last for 70 years, and you're standing up and telling Israel something else. You're preaching messages they want to hear, but not messages that God has spoken. More pointedly then, verse 6, they have seen false visions and lying divinations. They say, declares the Lord when the Lord has not sent them. This is an egregious sin, to claim to speak for God when they were following visions that came from their own minds and divination, that is, reading nature like the pagans for signs. The main sign in nature that they were finding was the nature of the human heart. We can get people together and they'll pay attention to us and we'll tell them what they want to hear and we'll be famous. But what is even more ridiculous is the second part of verse 6. They say, declares the Lord when the Lord has not sent them and yet they expect Him to fulfill their word. They did not hear or understand God's word, yet they boldly claimed to speak in his name, and then they had the irrational audacity to think that God would do what they were telling the people he would do in their lies. I've spoken it, so God, you need to do it. God has spoken, they said. He will deliver us from Babylonian rule. This discipline will pass quickly, which being interpreted is, that's what I want to believe, that's what you want to believe. Let's say it so, then expect God to bring it about. Verse 7, God brings all of this together in a summary statement and said, here's the deal. Verse 7, have you not seen a false vision? Are you not uttering lying divinations? Whenever you have said, declares the Lord, although I have not spoken. Your messages, your sermons to God's people, your prophetic statements are lies. That's the charge. You see the word therefore in verse 8, and we move now to the verdict. God sentences the lying prophets, beginning at verse 8. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, because you have uttered falsehood and seen lying visions, therefore, behold, I am against you, declares the Lord God. My hand will be against the prophets who see false visions and who give lying divinations. I am against you. It's the worst of all verdicts. God now will pronounce Three judgments against the prophets who abuse his name in their messages. Beginning in the middle there of verse 9. Notice the three. First, they shall not be in the council of my people. Second, nor be enrolled in the register of the house of Israel. And third, nor shall they enter the land of Israel. Let's just take these briefly in turn. First, they shall not be in the council of my people. You notice here that it's really, they're not presented here, these prophets, as false prophets. They're true prophets of God recognized in Israel officially. The problem is that what they're saying is a lie. 
but they will no longer be as official prophets in Israel any longer in the council of my people. That is, they will lose their influential position of leadership in God's earthly kingdom. Secondly, they will not be enrolled in the register of the house of Israel. They will not be counted as members of God's covenant people. We think of the registers of God's people that will come back from the exile. They'll not be there. They won't be counted among God's people because they've misrepresented the Lord. And then thirdly, they shall not enter the land of Israel. I think that's referring to after the 70-year discipline, when Israel will come back to the land, they're not going to be there. They won't come back with the re- those who return to populate the promised land. Now you can say, well, it's 70 years. How many of them are going to be alive anyway? I think this is generational. I think this means your clan, your people for good are not coming back to the promised land. In other words, in every way, God announces they will be cut off from his plan. And when Cyrus of Persia sends the Jews back to the promised land, precisely when God says he will, you won't be among them. And the whole point we find here at the end of verse 9. And you shall know that I am the Lord God. You will know that I am the Lord. It is my word that matters, not your inventions. God now raises a crescendo of accusations to the already condemning condemning charges that have been leveled against them. Verse 10, he continues, precisely, <clears throat> precisely because they have misled my people, saying, peace, when there is no peace, and because when the people build a wall, these prophets smear it with whitewash. Their message is peace when God is saying discipline. They're telling people what they want to hear, but There is no such peace. This is a time of judgment for Israel's sin. And so, in a sense, they help the people build a wall. The Hebrew word here for the translated wall describes a weak, flimsy wall, often for an interior room. We might use the word a partition, not something of great solid construction that could uh, could protect you or hold up against a storm. So the Jewish people were rejecting God's discipline and seeking to maintain their nation's viability. They were, in essence then, erecting a weak, flimsy wall. This is what people wanted. They wanted to believe God cannot be taking our nation away. He cannot be sending us into exile in Babylon. Surely God's going to stop this now and do what we want. It's a flimsy wall. And with that flimsy wall saying, we want it to be this way, this is how we want our life to work, these prophets, these preachers claiming God's word came in and essentially they just whitewashed the wall. That means they made it look pretty. The messages that they preach were what people wanted to hear and it just gave them a sense that, you know, this is really a solid wall. We really are going to stay in the land. God really is going to protect us. All of this is going to be over soon. And the prophets then, like whitewash of the wall, just made it look good, but did not call them to repentance. Their messages served like so much cheap white plaster. 
to make those ridiculously inferior walls look stronger and more impressive than they were. But the lying words of these prophets, they're whitewashing words that sought to legitimize people's rebellious hearts would accomplish nothing of good. Verse 11, say to those who smear it with whitewash, that's their their messages, say it, it shall fall. There's going to be a deluge of rain and you, O great hailstones, will fall and a stormy wind break out. And when the wall falls, will it not be said to you, where is the coating with which you smeared it? Once a wall tumbles over, where's the whitewash? It's gone. Your messages were worthless. Is what will be said. So God is saying the storm of my wrath will topple Israel's resistance to my truth. And on that day, your whitewashed messages will tumble with it. Indeed, a third and final deportation would come. And the walls of Judah's resistance to God's discipline would never withstand Babylon's final destruction of Jerusalem. It's what they wanted. It had nothing to do with reality. Verse 13, therefore, thus says the Lord God, I will make a stormy wind break out in my wrath, and there shall be a deluge of rain in my anger and great hailstones and wrath to make a full end. And I will break down the wall that you have smeared with whitewash and bring it down to the ground so that its foundation will be laid bare. When it falls, you shall perish in the midst of it and you shall know that I am the Lord. How do you read that? Babylon will come. Babylon will crush you in discipline. You will be in exile for 70 years. It makes no difference what your messages say. I am sovereign, not your messages, not your sermons. I am sovereign. All their prophecies of peace, their messages assuring people that God would overlook their sin, their sermons claiming discipline would never come, only blessing, these would all be swept away. You see there at the, at the end of verse 14, and connect it again to verse 9. The end of verse 9, the end of verse 14, and you shall know that I am the Lord. God must, in His love for His people, establish His sovereignty. And He says that that sovereignty hinges in their relationship to Him. It hinges on them speaking the truth. Speaking the Word. Speaking what God has actually said, not what they want to believe. So verse 15, Thus will I spend my wrath upon the wall upon Israel's position, her rejection of me, and upon those who have smeared it with whitewash, these false, these prophets of, who lie. And I will say to you, the wall is no more, nor those who smeared it. We don't even know their names. The prophets of Israel who prophesied concerning Jerusalem and saw visions of peace for her when there was no peace, declares the Lord God. And Israel's resistance to God would be crushed. Israel's army finally did complete its mission, took the third group to exile, and burned the city of Jerusalem. And it was over. Just as God had always been saying. And as Ezekiel had been preaching, and as Jeremiah had been preaching, and others, 
faithful prophets who spoke the word of the Lord against the desires of the people. Now there is much that distinguishes our experience as the church of Jesus Christ from Israel's experience in Ezekiel 13. God has not declared that an invading army will crush us as discipline for our long rebellion against him. That could happen. But God has not decreed that. He's not declared that to us. He's not made that clear to us. Nor do we have prophets denying God's determination to discipline us with captivity in a foreign land. Seems quite unlikely, but if that happened, okay. That, that might happen, but we don't have revelations saying that will happen. But there are three parallels to this passage that we do share as the followers of Christ. The first is God's objective revealed truth. He speaks the truth to His people. Secondly, the gap between what God says and what we want to hear. And thirdly, preachers who exploit the gap. By claiming to speak for God, but who simply speak what people want to hear. Now I think we need to be warned in our day that such messages are mesmerizing. They can dull our spiritual senses. They can blind our eyes to spiritual truth. They can conspire to weaken the fervor of our love for God, replacing it with a passion to hear only what we want to hear. And we can even arrange preachers through media today from around the world to say whatever we want to hear. The question is, are they speaking the truth that God has revealed? We find a warning then in this passage, for instance, as an example, against churches that preach a message of political utopia. And they preach it from the left, and they preach it from the right. And say things that people desperately want to hear, but things that God has not said. Saying that they speak for God, and people nod and say, yes. And all they're really hearing is their own political aspirations put into the mouth of God, who then must act. God's Word reveals no such utopian way through politics, and He steers us clear of such narrow aspirations indeed. But yet preachers claim to speak for God in promoting a political calibration to the Christian life. And people cheer. There's a place for politics. I don't deny it. But let's not make God say what He's not said. There are other churches that preach that God intends all people to be fabulously wealthy and always healthy because that's what Jesus does for His people. That's why He died for His people. God has never made such promises. It's just fantasies. But pastors will tell you that he has made those promises. And massive hordes of people across this globe absolutely love it. That's what they want to hear. So there's a preacher somewhere very nearby who will tell you exactly that. God hasn't said it. It's false. It's a lie. 
But perhaps the primary source of false doctrine that people in our day long to hear, maybe more pervasively, at least in our setting, is a message of peace that comes from realizing our worth, tapping our capacities to achieve moral superiority, to rescue ourselves, to try harder, to become more disciplined, to learn this fact and that fact that we can put together and really achieve what we were made to be. It's a message of peace where there is no peace. It's a message of peace that is found down inside as you rescue yourself and come to trust in yourself. But there is, of course, a message of true peace in this warring world. We've sung of it today. We rejoice in it as an assembly. It's not a peace of soul found inside of you and achieved by your good deeds. This peace is found only in Jesus Christ. Only in His sacrificial death in the place of sinners and His resurrection providing eternal life as a gift of God's grace. This He has said. This He has revealed. And this is the glory that we have to preach and teach that message. Peace with God that's real, comes through a real cross. A Savior who sacrificed Himself in our place and who truly rose from the dead. This the Scriptures have revealed. This is peace. And you may have gathered here with us today and honestly as you look at your life, what you're doing is really erecting a flimsy wall of protection against God's wrath against God's displeasure towards you in your sin and His justice in holding you accountable. You're erecting the flimsy wall of good deeds. I'm going to be better than other people of self-improvement. I'm going to get my act together and really live for God now. Of going to church just to go to church, believing that God will overlook your sins and the like. It's a flimsy wall that puts trust in you, puts trust in a God who won't be ultimately just. His, he has spoken. And He has spoken a message that that flimsy wall is going to be destroyed. And the false messages and even sermons that whitewash that wall will go away. But the answer is to come to place your trust and your confidence for your soul's peace in Jesus Christ crucified and risen. He is the King of kings, the Lord of lords. He will come again, establish His kingdom, and take us into His presence forever. That is a wall that will never fall. That is a foundation under our feet that we can take home to eternity forever. That's the solid base under us. And so Eden Baptist Church, we have then in response a stewardship of God's Word together as a church. To those who teach and preach in the assembly, it's a calling to handle the Word of God with integrity. It's a calling to study it diligently. It's a calling to truly speak for God by studying and honoring that Word and not being set off in the wrong direction by expectations. Not always an easy thing to do. 
but it must be done. We must handle that word with integrity. And we can certainly misinterpret the Scriptures. We will do that as human beings, unknowingly. We will make errors occasionally at times. We will not always apply the Word of God as we should. But teachers, preachers of God's Word, those who lead a Bible study, learn to hear your own spirit and to know that moment when you say, I'm really not sure this is true. It just sounds right. I heard somebody say this, and I'm not really following it. I can't really see it in Scripture, but it's an important person. So I'll quote them. Let's just handle the word with integrity and know that there's a higher accounting before the Lord of the church for those who proclaim His word, who speak in His name. And pray for those who do so that they would be faithful within this assembly. And to the church too, to every one of us, there is a calling here, a stewardship here. We must, first of all, welcome solid preaching and teaching. And that means, in part, yes, to endure it. You have to, there has to be a discipline to heed the word of the Lord for enough time and attention to be given to say, this is contextually grounded, this is grammatically grounded, this is grounded rightly in all of the corpus of Scripture. It doesn't happen in three minutes. And so there's an endurance that the church must continue to build. And we must orient our minds to know that good Bible teaching and preaching is not always what we want to hear. It must always, every one of us, when the Word of God is taught and preached and we don't like what we hear, to always ask the question, what has God said? What has God said? Where we ask that question, we're on the right track as long as we faithfully pursue that question. God's truth, in a world where there are so many false ways to peace, God's truth is always the way to peace. Always the way of life-giving, soul-sustaining, God-honoring peace. On this foundation, we can, and as God's people, we do stand for eternity. Let's pray. We praise you, Father, for this gift of your word and pray that we as a church would honor that gift, exercise faithful stewardship of it. I pray in behalf of anybody here who's trying to protect themselves behind a flimsy wall of self-centeredness, of sinful ways, of disobedience to your word, of just wanting to hear what they want to hear. I pray that you'd assure them that that wall is going to come tumbling down. And I pray that they'd put their feet solidly on the foundation of your word and stand behind that impregnable fortress of your revealed truth. May we all do that willingly, gladly, thankfully. Lord, help us to that end, for we live in a world that denies your word at every opportunity. We have a nation that is running away from you, despising your word, challenging you as creator, challenging you as Lord, despising you as the Savior. I pray that our hearts would not be attuned to the message of that world, 
that we would not be drawn in and begin to rewrite your word and develop sermons that are unfaithful and filled with lies. But I pray that we'd stand on the solid ground of the impregnable rock of your revealed truth. And we thank you for the privilege to do so. May we be faithful. Through Christ we pray. Amen.